Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on Chewing the Gristle, we have my buddy Scott Sherrard. I knew him from back in the Milwaukee days. He's gone on to great things. Fabulous guitar player and singer. You've seen him with the Greg Ullman Band, of which he was the musical director for many years. Currently, he's with Little Feet. Very proud of his achievements. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Sherrard. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, yet another installment of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. I'm here with Scott Sherrard, an old pal of mine from back in the day here in Milwaukee. Of course, he's gone on to do a bunch of stuff, uh, playing with Greg Allman and lately with Little Feet, and he's got a great solo career, and he's a playing, singing son of a gun, doggone it. Scott, it's so nice to see you and hear you again. It's been literally decades since we've spoken. Yeah, it has. Uh, Uncle Bob's music. I think I was about 15 when I first met you and I saw you play either right before or right after that at this little biker bar. And uh, it was it was an important gig for me. So you've uh, you've been a big influence all these years. Well, I apologize for that. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I'm flattered. No, Thank you. you. I remember I remember when you came and sat in uh, at the. Uh, it was a place called Stockholders, which, if you that will recall, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. Their, on their, on their, on uh, their, maybe you don't recall, and probably rightly so, on their matchbooks, it had uh, invest in a good time at Stockholders. <laughs> I, I guarantee whoever owned that place <laughs> had no stock. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember you came in, you sat in, you sounded great, and I remember uh, talking with your folks, and they were the nicest. How, how are your folks, by the way? Are they still around? They're retired. I th- they're down in Florida these days. Aha. Um, so that's 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 where they ended up. And I've been in New York City for like, oh boy, I moved here in the summer of '96. So t- you know, 24 years about thereabouts. Crazy. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about your your journey. Now you went to high school here in Milwaukee, but you were born in what Detroit area? Yeah, so I was born in Ann Arbor, and I was raised in Dearborn and, like, the suburbs of Detroit until I was about nine, eight or nine. And then um, we moved, like, a couple years where we were, like, in Minnesota for a year, and then we were in Pennsylvania from the age of about 10 to about 15. We were in Newtown, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour or so outside of Philly, and then I ended up in Milwaukee my sophomore year of high school, halfway through, like winter of uh, great time to move to Milwaukee, January. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's an eye opener. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I have a new a new record coming out and I actually you're, you'll probably this is this is a great time to have this conversation with you because I've named the album Rust Belt because people ask me where I'm from. And, and basically it's, you know, Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, last year in Minnesota, high school in Milwaukee, and uh, born in Michigan, and all my relatives are in Michigan. So I, I like to say I'm from the Rust Belt. So I just went ahead and named the new album Rust Belt. And I've got a little, um, I got a photo montage on the inside because when my when my parents retired, they sent me this box of photos and I had all these pictures of me 
with Stokes and Lee Gates and and um, all the fellas and like my first band in high school and all these different places, me with my grandfather, you know, shooting guns, you know, in the woods when I was a little kid and all this stuff. And I made it into a, a photo montage that's on the inside of it. So I really identify very, very strongly with the Midwest. And, you know, I'm I'm definitely like a Michigan animal at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> it's so it's, it's the, you know, my, my, my thought patterns and my actions are very formed by my formative years. You know, they say the, the age of one to eight are the, well, you've got so many kids, Greg. I mean, I've got two boys, but you, you know, the one to eight thing is like, I mean, you had a lot of kids when I met you. I mean, and, and now your kids are like great musicians. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Time marches on, my friend. It does indeed. You know, it, it's, do you find that, I mean, as much as, you know, people like to say, you know, Midwestern, you know, uh, mentality, the work ethic and so on and so forth. But I, I have generally found that in my travels, the people I seem to gravitate towards more and have more in common with are usually people that have some kind of connection to this area. I mean, it's just, a, it's a different mindset, I think. Well, my friends from Memphis, and I, I've, I've been lucky to make a lot of friends in Memphis in the last 20 plus years um, and tour with a lot of bands that are Memphians. And they call Detroit uh, North Memphis in Memphis. And I think, you know, and, and you and I, our experience in, in Wisconsin was really shaped by these guys. I'm, you know, I was mentioning like Stokes, you know, may he rest in peace, who died recently. And right. You know, and and all these other cats like, you know, remember Milwaukee Slim and Lee Gates and Willie Higgins. These guys were all from the South. Right. So um, I think and then we go even deeper to like, you know, Hubert and Pine Top, all the Chicago guys that were kind of adjacent at the time I was there. Right. Um, And Hubert ended up we ended up following each other out here because then he ended up, you know, with Levon and, and Jimmy Vivino and stuff. So. It's kind of interesting how that whole arc went, but all these cats were from the South. So I think the Midwest, in a way, a lot a lot of people I know in the South, they don't even like the term Midwest. Like, it makes no sense to them. It's like right. East, West, South, North. Like, they don't, <laughs> they think of it, like I said, like North Memphis. And I right. think a lot of that has to do with the talent from the South that ended up in, 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 the, in the Midwest um, and their Southern connections. I mean, Aretha Franklin is the biggest one because in Detroit, you know, even when I was a little kid, everyone was fighting over Aretha, you know. She was born in Memphis, but she was raised in Detroit. And she always kind of co-identified with the two things, but they're kind of inseparable in a way. Yeah, I hear you. Absolutely. You know, interesting you're mentioning those names, Willie Higgins and and Lee Gates. I remember the first gig I did at a at a club on the east side of Milwaukee, it was at the Murray Tap, and it was with Lee Gates. And Lee Gates, you know, early on, I always got along well with Lee. I, I understand he could be a, a little prickly to some folks, but I always got along well with Lee. It was Lee Gates, but the guy that really helped me along was Junior Brantley. Junior was the guy that, you know, showed me the ropes and kind of said, you know, try to do this. But he was never, never dogmatic. You know what I mean? It was always like, very open and and would give suggestions, but it was never like this is the right way or else. You know what I mean? And and there was a lot of mentor like people like that in Milwaukee that were were bona fide, had connections with, as you said, real bona fide uh, blues cred that lived in town and were readily accessible, and uh, it was awesome. Yeah, it was uh, it was the ultimate. And then I went to 
uh, High School of the Arts, West Division, which at the time had a really prodigiously well-funded jazz program, uh, mostly funded by Mike Cudahy. Right. And uh, he created this partnership with, um, with the uh, Paps Theater. And so at high school, in high school, like when Josh Redman would come to town or Roy Hargrove or, you know, that was when they were all in GQ magazine and stuff. And there was this whole Young Lions movement and jazz. Right, right. Um, they would come to the school and spend the day with us and jam with us and then invite some of us to go sit in with them at the Pabst and, and, or, or at other lectures they were doing. And um, Milwaukee was just, as it turns out at that time, it was a really, and also, you know, you know that whole vibe, like, well, my time there was like the early to mid 90s, you know, like 92 to 96 or so. That was a really special time because I had a bunch of friends who were, you know, trying to be like in Pearl Jam. And right. I just I went to see Stokes and I was like, I just want to be like this guy. And right. there'd be five people in the place. So I stalked him for for like a year and I ended up playing drums on one of his gigs, bass you know, until I got into the guitar chair and it was like, it was literally like washing the dishes, you know, for a five star sure. chef, you know? Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's it, those years, those three or four years or whatever it was in Milwaukee, that, that cemented everything for me, um, about how I, about how I play and approach music because I was exposed to so much, um, you know, high school of the arts, West division. So many of my friends were these great, like Sean Hinton. I, I don't know right. if you've, Connected yeah, with Sean. Sean. Absolutely. Have you done an interview with him yet? I have not, but we're gonna. He's a he's a he's a pal. Absolutely. So you got to hook up. So Sean was a, a year younger than me in school, and we were in ensembles together at the high school. And we used to spend the whole day. You know, he would teach me all these. You know, um, uh, like you know John P. Key tunes and like sort of the new gospel guitar stuff that ended up on all those neo soul records eventually. Right. You know, he was already playing all that stuff. His uncle had showed him all that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned so much from him. And, you know, obviously he went on to this whole amazing career with Mary J. Blige and writing songs for NSYNC and all this stuff. But that's how High School of the Arts West Division jazz program was. Everyone I know who I'm friends with, at least a dozen people that were in the class, like, before me, with me or after me, um, they're all professional musicians, and I think Which that's is a testament to how great that program was, right. you know? So I'm curious as to you know, how you got into the music you got into. I mean, what, what was it? When was it? And, and as it took over and you started, you started going to the high school, I mean, the attitude is, I mean, like I know when uh, I was growing up, you know, my you know, I'm the youngest of seven kids, even though people who listen to this podcast are probably sick of me saying this same shit. But, you know, <laughs> that's I, I, remarkable. <laughs> I'm the youngest of seven kids and no one else played in my family. Right. My dad was yeah. a lawyer. The idea of me being a musician initially horrified him. He was very supportive all along the way, although he tried to deter me at every turn. Like, please, you know, if you want a stable middle class existence, this is not your route. And then when he realized I was all in, he was cool. But. The point is, is that it was a very, you know, it was a, a, a trail fraught with peril, shall we say. How was your experience from getting into the music to going to the high school of the arts to like saying, OK, I'm going to pursue this as a living? What what was it like for you, your journey in that regard? Well, the the, the front half of my childhood was an unbelievable amount of instability uh, coming out of, you know, my family's involvement in the Michigan rock and folk scene 
you know, being like the band house. So, oh, okay. You know, that's, that's kind of how it all started. And then it ended with, you know, my dad, you know, eventually working his way up and becoming a corporate guy, which all that took place when I was about, I don't know, like in the ninth, you know, eighth or ninth grade that started to solidify for him. And, you know, he had this whole period, um, or, you know, proceeding when I was born from about 69 to 76, I was born. And then a few years after that, where he was still trying to be a singer songwriter and get signed and, you know, do a, and, and so basically like the guitars were around the house, the right records were around the house. Uh, the first thing I learned was, you know, the Jimmy Reed rhythm pattern, 12 bar blues, you know, the intro to O'Carroll. I mean, I had, you know, as far as plain American music goes, I had all the tools at my disposal at all times. So in my house, I was an only child. And as soon as they noticed that I could pick things up by ear, they just, you know, here's a cheap drum set. Here's a cheap bass. Here's a four track cassette recorder. And once I had those things, literally from the age of 10 to 12, I was making my own records. So I was playing bass, drums, guitar, and I was, I started by recreating albums. So it was like everything from the British stuff of like Bad, Bad Company and Led Zeppelin to, you know, ironically, my two favorite bands, which are the Allman Brothers and Little Feet, um, which that's a whole nother crazy coincidence with all this. But I would sit and I would try to recreate a song from Waiting for Columbus track for track with a four track stacking tracks. Um, and that's kind of how I got started. And then I put a band together when I was 12 and I taught everybody how to play the instruments. So that was <laughs> that was kind of, you know, the that was the 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 band leader producer side of me coming out for the first time. So I've always listened to music as a result of that kind of in totality. But I gotta be honest, like all that just came to me. There was this coincidence of of these great records and being, you know, raised as a musician by a musician and the guitars in the house, which was only acoustic guitars, by the way. Because he, he became, you know, he was originally a, a garage rock guy in Detroit, and then he switched to folk. So I was the guy who brought the electric back in the house. And how I did that is I, I remember when I was 11, I made the move to electric, and I, I sold my Nintendo system and video games at a garage sale. And I went and bought uh, a white Stratocaster, which I still have to this day, and I'm actually going to be using with Little Feet. It was a Strat Plus, and the reason I bought it was because I saw Fred Tackett and Paul Barrere play and Eric Clapton the same summer, and they were all playing the Lace Sensor and Warren Haynes. They were all playing those Lace Sensor That's Strat right. Pluses. Yep. So I, I raised about 700 bucks from the garage sale, and then my dad made up the difference, and we went to Philly. We went to music store. I forgot the name. It was a great family music store there. I don't know if it's still there or not, and bought that guitar. And that kind of, you know, that a PV Bandit, uh, uh, what I call the Milwaukee blue special. Right. <laughs> you know, by the time I got to Milwaukee, I had like a nice Rivera and everyone had the bandits that I liked. And I was like, shit, I could have just kept that thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so that's kind of, I really just kind of, I, you know, I'm, I'm a Capricorn and an only child and I kind of launched into this whole other thing. And, um, you know, my my parents were very um, support, obviously supportive of it. I mean, even to the point of being, you know, stage parents in the beginning to get me started. But then, as soon as I got my driver's license in my car, and and um, you know, Mike Costell at the Up and Under got me signed on as a bar back, even though I never worked a day in my life there, I could be in there legally from sixteen because he did that for me. 
Uh, and the band Good leaders used to protect me. Yeah. So, and he gave me a bunch of gigs and took care of me and, and the musicians took great care of me. Um, you know, you being one of them, you know, and, um, that really, that's really what formed me more than anything is just that confluence of events. Um, you know, it wasn't any one person or one thing. And a lot of it was my drive. I mean, I just, I became totally obsessed with just music, not just guitar. It's, that's always been my thing is like the songs, you know, the arrangements, the, the, the production, the, you know, it's, the playing has always kind of come later for me. And when it gets to the playing, it always goes back to point, point A, you know, it goes exhibit A, you know, the song, you know, right, right. and I've always been wired that way. And I feel like that's probably been my greatest advantage because I think if there's anything that's kept me as humble as I can possibly be, it's the fact that I feel like we're all serving the song and not ourselves or our moment to shine. And it's probably what's kept me in the employ of, of, of people and also employing my own band is like, I try to put that first. And, and, and a lot of that comes from, you know, people like yourself and, and all the great singer songwriters and players I was raised by. Um, and, and also a lot of it comes from my own drive because I'm kind of like a, armchair music historian since I was a little kid, you know? Yeah, I understand. It's an interesting thing. I mean, um, it, obviously with you going to the high school, the arts would have been a different experience. I mean, it was strange for me. I'm, I'm 10 years older than you are to the year. I was born 66. You're 76, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Because uh, even, you know, that 10 years prior, I mean, everyone I went to high school with, uh, I mean, Let's just put it this way. I was probably the only guy in my high school that knew that Greg Allman was a great musician, not that guy that was on People Magazine with Cher. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was, it you know, if the musician guys in the high school were talking, it, they were all like about Rush. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying I was into this roots-oriented stuff. You know, when Steve Ray Vaughan came out, I was already into Albert King and, and Freddie King and Muddy Waters and Hollow Wolf, so I, and Hendrix. So I was a Hendrix fanatic. So what was it like for you being now 10 years younger than me and, and, and amongst these individuals where it must have been generationally lonely finding kindred spirits or not? Um, you know, it was interesting. I, I've always tried to stay open-minded to genre, but definitely with the guitar thing, you mentioned Stevie Ray Vaughan, and it's like Stevie Ray is like, was one of the major catalysts for me being an improviser. And the reason was, is I saw him play at the Spectrum in Philadelphia on his last tour. I was probably about 11, 12, something like that. I'd just gotten that Strat. And I went to see Jeff Beck. I was obsessed with Jeff Beck. And that was kind of my entree into it. But I didn't even try to sound like him. Like I was into Wired and Blow by Blow and Guitar Shop had just came out. I was listening to that. And... As it turns out, my parents were more into Stevie Ray than Jeff Beck. So we went to the show. And that night, as fate would have it, Jeff happened to open the show. He had the trio with Terry Bozio and Jan Hammer. They came out. And I I remember that night vividly. And I remember after Jeff finished, I turned to my dad and I said, we we need to go home. Like, there's there's no way that Stevie Ray Vaughan is going to match this. Like, that's the greatest guitar playing I've ever seen. I need to go home and practice. That's what I said. To, I need to go work on this because I just watched it. I need to remember what I saw. And basically it was like, look, we paid for these tickets. We're going to watch the whole show. We're fans of Stevie. Just watch it. And I, I will never forget this. Stevie came out. He played 
house is rocking. And then he went right into a slow blues. And it was like this kind of medley deal. And at the end of it, I just looked up and I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. And we watched the whole show and I was like speechless. And I got to the end and it, the difference was not to knock Jeff because look, I mean, Jeff is a genius. He's a fucking genius. What Stevie had that night, and it might've just been that night, who knows? Because they're both like master, sort of like shaman guitar players. Stevie changed the energy of that room for the kid I was. It, there was something about, they both shrunk the room, but the way Stevie shrunk the room is it, it felt like a, it felt like a, like a Baptist revival or something. It, it had an emotional effect on me. And I went so far down his rabbit hole after that for about a year or two. And of course he passed, you know, he died in the, in Wisconsin in the horrible helicopter crash. And I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, but that made me even more obsessed with him and the folklore that went around that. And, and I read a very important article with him, and I think it was in Musician Magazine or Guitar Player Magazine, where they asked him what he was listening to. And this came out after he had passed away. And he mentioned two albums, Donny Hathaway Live and Grant Green Alive. And it took me years to find those on vinyl because they were not reissued. They were not right. in print. They were not on CD. They were not on cassette. And those two albums ended up shaping the rest of my life. And that is how I will always hold Stevie's sort of legacy to me. However, when you and I first met each other, and you'll remember this well, there were a lot of, you know, kids and guys going around with fedoras and strats. Right. Playing Pride totally. and Joy. You know, we all had to play Pride and Joy back then. I remember even Stokes would sing Pride and Joy all the time. Like, he kind of, it kind of like, I'm sure it's similar to when Hendrix came out where the really heavy cats, like if you talked back in the day to Clarence Gatemouth Brown or Wayne Bennett or Cornell Dupree about Hendrix, they were probably like, eh, you know, right. it's a lot of hooey, you know? But then you listen to Machine Gun and it's like the greatest guitar solo ever played. And right. now we can look back and say that. But certainly in our time when we first met in the 90s, you know, Stevie Ray post-mortem was becoming kind of like a dirty word amongst like musicians because- there were so many people trying to cop his thing and failing spectacularly. So the point is, I'm, I'm sorry for the long exposition, no, a, but it's- No, it's all great, great. It's a great it's a great and very loaded question that kind of brings me back to the first time we met uh, and how the scene was. Because I get a lot of guitar players, younger people ask me, what was it like before the internet, let alone what was it like when you could walk into a club and listen to Hubert Sumlin play for 10 people, you know? Right. And really what it was like was- you either knew that that was a gift or you didn't, or you were in it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. And I like to think that, you know, guys like you and I, even though we're separated by 10 years, I like to think we were both in it for the right reasons. And I think that's what kind of, you know, one of the things I admired about all these great players uh, in Milwaukee at that time was the individuals, you know, was not only the old school cats from the South, but like, you know, what you were doing, what Billy Flynn was doing, you know, what Perry Weber was doing with Jim Liven and stuff. You know, it was like, I would hear you guys playing. I go, okay, this guy, he's not, he's not just trying to cop something. Like he's serving the song. He's playing this way. He plays that way. This guy plays this way, this way, you know, they're individuals. It's, it's, that was a really, really important gospel that I picked up from all those nights of sitting in clubs and playing in clubs with that generation. And um, for me, that's how I put Stevie Ray Vaughan in context. Um, 
because he's still just, you know, Stevie Ray is still this, I don't want to say he's pernicious, but it's like people take the wrong lessons from him, like the big strings, you know? Right, right. You know, it's it's like, and I was doing that, you know, and killing myself for no reason. But then, right. you know, eventually I got smart and I figured it out. But, um, you know, there's a lot of folklore and myths around him and Hendrix because they were so powerful. And, and meanwhile, it's like, thank God Jeff is still out there just, you know, changing lives every night with how he plays Absolutely. the guitar. Um, so, you know, may, may he reign for a long time. You know, it's interesting. I, I started to get a bunch of flashbacks from, from back in the day, and you're absolutely right. In that, in that period of, you know, um, right after Stevie passed, well, let's be honest, right, right about to the point where he, he did pass, he was starting to kind of really become Clapton-esque in notoriety. I mean, he'd really gone beyond, like, the medium venue arena guy, and he was becoming more of, like, Alpine Valley, you know, a bigger name act. And so then when he passed, it was even, you know, extrapolated as a result of, you know, what that does. And I remember that, you know, as, as you said, when you had to play clubs, you had to do some Stevie Ray. And, of course, I would never... There were the guys that would want to do it note for note, which I which I remember I got into, um, I, and I didn't mean it in a negative way per se, but there was a, a guy in town that would do like uh, Hendrix and ZZ Top and Steve Ray Vaughan, and, and he would do the stuff, the solos, note for note, and it was great. And I would say, man, that's fantastic. I go, but you know, to me, the whole spirit of that music is improvising. You know, it's, it's like the, it's the... Um, you know, like Hendrix never played the same song twice, you know, or, or you name it. You know, certainly Stevie Ray Vaughan didn't play the same song the same way, right? In terms of his improvising, the solos. But when you started to play in clubs, you're like, okay, well, I want to do my own music. And it's, it's, it's definitely informed by the blues. I would say it's more blues than anything else, but it has all these other elements into it. You know, like a little feet type of thing, you know, where you got, there's this blues, there's country, there's funk, there's jazz, there's, you know, this New Orleans-y thing, whatever. Uh, but, you know, you're doing some Steve Ray Vaughan, and I would do the songs in a way that was improvised. And I'll never forget the, when I finally said, I'm never playing one of those fucking songs again, as I was playing someplace, and we were doing uh, Tightrope. And we would always open it up at the end, and then I would solo. And I got done, this guy comes up, and he goes, oh, be true to Stevie, man. That solo was kind of lame. And I said, not that you'd know, not that you'd know the difference. <laughs> but I'm never playing that again. And then another time someone kept on yelling, Stevie Ray, Stevie Ray. And I said, do I go to your job and yell quarter pounder? Shut the fuck up. And I was done. <laughs> and I would refuse to do Stevie Ray anymore. And people used to, because we used to do Riviera Paradise and we do tightrope. We did a couple of those Vaughn brother tunes, but I never, I never begrudged Stevie for it. It was just the, the mania, you know what I mean? And then it would always freak me out too. When people would, when I would, you know, I'd hear Steve Ray Vaughan, obviously when he would do a slow blues, it was Albert King more than anything. Right. And then you would say, well, it's great. And I love the way he does Albert King, but it's Albert King. And people would listen to Albert King and listen to Steve Ray Vaughan and have no idea what the hell I was talking about. It'd be like, what are you talking about? That's, that's a flying V. I'm like, yeah, well, that's, it's the same notes. But again, I loved what Stevie Ray Vaughan did. And in retrospect, you know, it's, I mean, it's really more about the tone and, and being, you know, as I, as I, I always kind of use this, and I don't know what your feeling is about it, but I was such a huge Hendrix fanatic before I, before I even knew who Stevie Ray Vaughan was. And so um, I always look at Hendrix was an innovator and Stevie Ray Vaughan was a culminator. 
You know what I mean? He took all those influences and put it together in this new package with a great tone and a new delivery, and it was awesome. But Hendrix was from fucking Mars. You know what I'm saying? I don't know how you feel about that I mean, Stevie Ray would agree wholeheartedly with you. Um, And I I agree with you, too. I think it's a great way to sum up that legacy of, you know, guitar players. But, I mean, if you only gave me one musician that was my influence, it would be Hendrix. I mean, he's number one for me. It's like Hendrix and Miles Davis is like my number one reason to be alive. And really the reason that is, is because in something that they have in common is that they were, um, they were true artists and they really put um, everything they did, like with Hendrix, for example, it was this kind of 360 program with him of like being an innovator. So, and he was also a master curator. Right. So he he's playing on the R&B scene in Harlem. He used to live not far from where I'm, I'm up in the country now at my mother in law's house. But I live in Harlem in the city and he used to live not far from where I live, which interestingly, I live in this triangle where you have Minton's Playhouse, where bebop was invented by Charlie Christian and Dizzy. Right. And then you have where Hendrix lived and you have King Curtis's apartment and Cornell Dupree's apartment. They were all in this area I live in now. Uh, and Charlie Christian's apartment, you know. So, and I always say this is my sort of like, you know, this is my um, my 44-year-old, uh, you know, big sum up with the guitar when I, whenever I teach at a clinic is the electric guitar started with Charlie Christian and it ended with Jimi Hendrix and it all happened within 10 blocks of my apartment. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, you know, that's kind of that's it. And the reason, the reason I kind of feel like it ended with Hendrix and I feel like we're all culminators with an electric guitar in our hands, he turned right. all of us into Yo-Yo Ma basically because... He, he took the whole program, the effects, um, the stagecraft, the songwriting, um, you know, the, the, the arranging, the way he dressed, like the right. way he spoke. I mean, the whole fucking enchilada is just right. Jimi Hendrix. Right. And I, I don't think anybody's, I don't even think, you know, the Three Kings got anywhere near where he, where he took the guitar. There's not even close. Because it just went to, he took it up so many notches. When you go from Are You Experienced to, to me, you know, Machine Gun is the greatest guitar solo of all time. Right. I mean, I agree. You know, that's, I'm with that's you. for me, that's like that one note that he holds out. I mean, yeah. I. <laughs> it's like the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, man, I got, I had to, so, so I asked for that album as a gift for, for my birthday it was a $35 compact disc that had to be ordered from Tokyo when I was about 13, 12 or 13. And I ordered it from the Sam Goody in the mall. And I went to the mall and got it. It was in all this plastic packaging. Remember how that was with the CDs? Oh, yeah. And you had to like cut it out. I got it out and had the seven tunes. And I put it on. Who knows? When Who Knows came on, I was like, wait a second. Wait, I have to rethink everything. And it got to the end of that. And I was like, oh my God, I need to learn this. And then Machine Gun came on. And I remember listening to the whole thing in my basement on the CD player and it just got to that note. And it was like, it was kind of like when I saw Stevie Ray and he played those two songs, it was like the clouds part of it. And I was like, this is the guitar. Like this right. is how you tell a story with an electric guitar. It was just, that track is just, I mean, that track, all you need to know about that track is that changed Miles Davis's career. He heard right. that and he was like, fuck acoustic jazz. Like I'm done with it. This, right. this is what I want to do. And if you can fuck up Miles Davis, you win. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the Hendrix thing is such a, a strange thing for me because, you know, 
my brother and I had to room together. So he was the oldest, I was the youngest. There were five girls in between. And so my poor brother's 14 years older than I am, and he's got to live with this punk, right? And uh, But I had all of his records. So And he went to school, high school, between 66 and 1970. So... It was all Hendrix and Cream and Stones and Beatles and, you know, uh, Grand Funk and, and uh, James Gang and all this kind of stuff. But for some reason, Hendrix spoke to me at a very young age. I mean, I, mem- I remember they would have to put on Axis Boulder's Love for me to get to take naps. I want you, we need to take a nap. Put on that one. And, and I remember doing a, um, uh, a report on Jimi Hendrix in third grade. And having an argument with the teacher because he was a drug addict. He died of a drug overdose. Like, well, technically, it was barbiturate intoxication. So it was the same thing that Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> and I so, mean, technically, technically, it was his manager. But yeah. Right. We could get into that wormhole. You know, absolutely. I mean, I am such, you know, and it's such a weird thing. And I've tried to come to grips with um, how much. You know, we're victims of uh, of the groupthink and, you know, the uh, the religiosity, if you will, of, of these things. But, you know, I've looked at the Hendrix thing from every angle. and I, I still go, sorry, it's still the fucking best <laughs> in, in terms of, as you said, the music, uh, in terms of the songs, the innovation with the guitar, the emotive quality of the guitar. And as you said before... Here's a guy, the guy didn't take a bad picture. It's like, you know, to this day, it's like, you you know, I follow all these um, Hendrix, you know, tribute things on Instagram. And there's all these pictures you've never seen before. And you're just like, this guy was the coolest guy to ever walk the planet, you know. And uh, and I still, and now there's this other thing online where this guy, apparently Janie Hendrix must be loosening up the reins a little bit in terms of her policing of the Internet. Because there's a guy that's posting multiple takes of all the stuff from Electric Ladyland and just every gig you can imagine. I mean, they, Milwaukee, the scene in 1968, both shows, the, the show at the arena, Dane County College, everything is on there. And I find myself listening to this stuff, and it's amazing. When he's on, as you said, it's like this connectivity to another dimension that goes beyond strings and wood. I mean, it's not licks. It's not, oh, I'm imagining theory. It's like, no, there's something going on there. There's this connectivity to another realm. And um, yeah, it's it, it doesn't get old. I, just last night, I found myself going to sleep. I put on the old ear goggles and I find something on YouTube and I listen to that stuff as I fade off. And usually as a result, the dreams are, are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I mean, that, you know, that stuff, for as many drugs as he was doing, you don't need any to listen to it. That's for sure. I right. mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, um, it's the most powerful music I've ever heard. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's unattainable is what it is, you know? So we all, you know, Hendrix gave us all a lot to grapple with. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. well, let's but it's get cool. To in, in striving for it, we get better, you know? Absolutely. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So let's talk about your... When you get out to New York and... So 96, you know, you're still, you're a young lad. Did you go to school out there or did you just say, fuck it, I'm going to New York to see what happens or kind of a combination of the both or what, what was, what was the plan? 
Well, I um, yeah, you know, it's interesting with all this stuff. Uh, you know, you look back, you know, as a musician who's been, I've been a musician my whole life, although I did, when I moved to New York, I had to get a day job for the first three years I was there. And it's like, I was working, first I was an office temp within a temp agency. And then I moved over to working at the Carlisle Hotel on the Upper East Side in the purchasing department. Um, and I was gigging at night and I was, you know, taking meetings with Ahmed Erdogan and I had all this incredible shit happening. And I was like putting on a fucking suit and tie and going to work like three or four days a week, every week, just to pay my rent. Um, and, you know, I went down in the first few years in New York, you know, I was young enough to go down a few blind alleys. Um, so I did. And uh, I had a great band with my buddy, Sean Dixon from uh, Milwaukee um, called the Chesterfields. Right. And we went from a three piece to a four piece to a, a, like a 10 piece band. It was very, uh, very idealistic. Actually, we were way ahead of our time on many levels because now every band is like 10 pieces with horns and stuff. Right. You know, when you think about all these great bands who are having success, like Wolfpack and Lawrence and all these all these groups, we were doing that in like 99, 2000. We had a lot of labels coming to see us and stuff. And you remember how shit used to be. I mean, before anyone was online, I mean, online existed, but no one was like doing music on there because it was right. so incredibly slow. So, um, you know, we had labels coming to shows. We had limos in front of the club. We had a residency at the Bitter End, which is a very famous club on Bleecker right. Street. And, um, you know, we were touring. We were doing stuff. We played Summerfest a couple times. We were, you know, trying to do the thing. And uh, it didn't really work out. But that was my early years. And, I mean, we lived in, you know, Sean Dixon and I and another musician lived in a rent-controlled apartment on 13th and 1st Avenue, which was a very lucky find. And, you know, when I moved in in the summer of 96... August 96, uh, it was fucking hot every day. And, uh, it's everything smelled like garbage. We were on a fifth floor walk up. So I walked my super reverb up those stairs two times, oh. once to take it up there. And then the next time to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so I got a blues junior, you know, I figured it out, um, with the five floor walk up, but you know, I had grown up I, I was a, you know, my, my passion was like English literature when I was actually in high school besides music. And I was obsessed with the beat poets. And I ended up moving into an apartment that was across the street from Allen Ginsberg. So ah. I used to go have lunch, you know, at the, at the Chinese place for $4, you would get, you know, dumplings and noodles and rice, <laughs> car, full carb, full, full right. 20 year old carb load. And there'd be, you know, Allen Ginsberg eating ginger fish, you know, wild and, sa and saying hi to me. You know, I hey, neighbor, you know, he he passed away not long after that. I think it was like seven or eight months later, he was in hospice in his apartment. And I remember looking down from my apartment into his apartment and kind of watching him fade off. Um, wild. But that was really interesting coming from, you know, the Rust Belt to be, you know, in a five floor walk up in New York, you know, with literally junkies passed out in the vestibule, you know, um, you know, and I was, unfortunately, when I moved there, it was like the beginning of what became known. And this, this has taken on a whole nother meeting. Now we used to call it Giuliani time. Um, huh? so it was the beginning. <laughs> it wasn't just the beginning of the end of, uh, the neighborhood, but the Republic as it turns out. Right. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, he used to send these SWAT teams into the East Village uh, to clear out, you know, squatters, residences, which is really like, you know, artist lofts and stuff. And, you know, they, they'd clear the building and then they'd, uh, Starbucks would go in, clear the building, a Chase Bank would go in, clear the, you know, so 
he kind of like made the place safe and made it horrible and unlivable culturally sure. at the same time. And then there was the smoking ban. And then there was the police uh, metered sound ordinance where it was a 90 dB limit in every club in certain buildings where there were residents on top. That all, that hammer started swinging when I got there and it kept swinging harder and harder and it just started taking out one fucking club after another for four years. So by the time we get to 9-11, flat earth, you know, like the whole local scene for like, what well, it just became tip jar gigs, which were, ended up becoming these really cool gigs that produce Nora Jones and some friends of mine, like Richard Julian and Jesse Harris, who wrote songs for her that are on that. They performed on that record. And I love Nora and I love what she did out of it. But the places like the living room and Rockwood Music Hall, that's the dawn of all that. But the thing was, is as a guy, you know, coming from the Midwest, where it was like I would walk out at, you know, Thursday night at the up, up and under, I'd walk out with $1,200 cash that we right. split up between four guys, right? R- right. I'd be like, you know, and I'd be like, fuck these places, you know? Yeah. And then eventually all the gigs that were operated the way the up and under was were gone. And I ended up having to play those places. And then it all were, it all came out in the wash because eventually they went from you know, tips to bigger stages. And now I have a great relationship with, with Rockwood in particular, where they have this beautiful, you know, 150 seat venue. That's, that's a door deal. And it's a very generous door deal. And it's very, it all worked out in the end, but there was this transition of, you know, and the tragedies, you know, 9-11, 2008 financial crash. We kind of went through all these waves in New York of, of, uh, you know, immolation really of the scene right. and it, every time it would affect the live music scene. And obviously the pandemic is sort of like the, the unspeakable, uh, but the venues are all still there that I love. So, you know, our, our venues now are city winery, Rockwood music hall, this great little place in Brooklyn called bar lunatico and they're all back and they're open hundred percent. So they made it. Um, so I think things are improving. Um, but I moved to New York at the wrong time for live music for sure. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you how you hooked up with Greg Allman and and kind of that 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 whole experience because that was uh, you know obviously a pretty huge deal. I mean, I'm I'm a huge Allman Brothers fan. I think as every guitar player of our you know it, you mentioned it's, it's little the Allman Brothers exactly. Well, the first time I met the last long tour I did with Greg Allman was uh, twenty summer of twenty sixteen, and we were on tour double bill with Peter Frampton. And um, took me about two weeks. You know, I was the musical director for Greg's band. So whenever Greg wanted something to happen, we would talk about it and I'd get it done. And um, I asked him, I said, you know, I was watching Peter play and he was just fucking killing it every night. And Greg hadn't seen the show yet. I said, Greg, you got to come out and watch Peter play one night. You know, we can't, we watched the show and Greg was like, oh my God, he sounds amazing. And I said, he's got to play with us, you know? And I've been trying to get to Peter for two weeks, but he has he has a lot of people around him and stuff. And I think he's he's got a very justified protective barrier around him from his experiences in the music business. Air sure. Force. Um, and I, I totally respect that. The point is, is to keep a long story short, I finally got to Peter and uh, I was brought to his dressing room one day after our sound check. He should just showed up for sound check. He had this beautiful dressing room set up. I just have to mention, you know, beautiful Moroccan rugs and candles lit and great, great jazz music on. And I was like, this guy is like, got it so fucking dialed in on the road. <laughs> you know, because you know how the road can be. It can just be this brutal, soul-crushing beating. Yes. And he obviously had created this beautiful 
space around him. And that's probably why he was great every night. And he was lovely. I sat down with him. He was like, you know, oh, it's so great to meet you guys. Sound great. And I said, would you like to, would you like to sit in with us? You know, cause I talked to Greg and he saw the show the other night and Peter goes, Oh my God. He goes, you, Greg wants me to play with him. And I said, I said, yeah, Peter. And he goes, you got to understand the Almond Brothers were like Humble Pie's biggest influence. It's like the reason we bought Marshalls and did the twin guitar things and all this stuff. And I said, Peter, you know, my two favorite albums made at the Fillmore East were Almond Brothers and Humble Pie rocking the Fillmore. I said, I had those right. when I was a kid. I said, those are like, and he goes, yeah, well, he's, he's like, well, we heard the Almond Brothers. And when we played the Fillmore, we were thinking about the Almond Brothers and we were trying to be the Almond Brothers. And he's like, it's my dream to play with Greg Almond. <laughs> that is so, wild. It was a, such a great conversation. And I said, what's your favorite Almond Brothers song? You know, and he goes, oh, dreams. And I said, you're playing dreams with us tonight. Awesome. And we did it. And it's on YouTube. You can watch it. Somebody filmed it. And I tell you, man, the coolest thing is as I was leaving my meeting with Peter, he goes, you know, I have this 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 rack system and I have a couple amps, I have all this stuff. And I, I don't know if my techs can be able to set it up on stage. I go, Peter, why don't you just why don't you just set up a plexi, just plug right into that motherfucker and just turn it up, man. Right. You know, and uh, he's like, cool, cool. We'll do that. We'll do that. So we get to the gig and and Greg standing on the side of the stage right before we go on. And I told him, look, Peter's going to sit in with us and all that. And, and Greg goes, uh, he looks across the stage and he goes, is that Marshall up there? And I go, yeah. And he goes, set up next to me. He's like, is he going to be loud? <laughs> and I said, I said, I said, yeah. I said, it's going to be, it's going to be really loud, but it's going to be really good. And he's like, oh man, I don't know. And then we went out and played the song. And after the song, Greg, you know, he used to do this. And I went over and he goes, man, that motherfucker can play. <laughs> that was the biggest, the biggest compliment you can get playing with Greg is if you could play really loud and he was happy. Because he fucking hated loud guitar. So Peter, Peter knocked it right out of the park. And um, anyway, that was the coolest thing about the gig. But I thought that'd be a relevant story just to to let you know, like, what the vibe was around Greg and, like, how influential he was, but how kind of cool he was. And that's how it was working with him, you know. Um, he was He was sort of, like, chasing the beast just like all of us were. We would, you know, I spent about nine plus years living with Greg on a bus and writing songs with him and arranging the band and hiring and firing band members and like really shaping the vision. And I, I can tell you that every day ended with him putting on anything from Muddy Waters to Pharaoh Sanders to Pink Floyd. We used to watch live at Pompeii all the time. And we would just sit there and he would just do the same thing I was doing. He would just go, man, am I ever going to get it this good? Am I ever going to get this Bobby Blandwick? He was always chasing it, man. And he had that humble frame of mind. And that's the most important thing I try to share with people about working with Greg is we all started because of, you know, his brother's band, as he used to say. Right, um, right. You know, which was, you know, Dwayne was really the band leader and, and Greg always thought, oh, look, it's my hey. youngest son. What's up, Lewin? Can you let hey, me buddy. finish this, please, buddy? For you. Oh, thank you. you. School's out. So nice. he just made this for me. So he's a, apparently I, I have a jeweler in the family, which could be really, really more valuable than having another musician. <laughs> um, but so so really the thing was, is, you know, their their band and their ethos was built around musicianship and 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 in, in Greg's case, particular song craft. In Dwayne's case, it was really in sort of like band leading and 
you know, Dwayne was a master sort of like producer, arranger, band leader. And the two of them, those were their kind of their roles. You know, Greg was, it's about the songs. It's about the songs. And Dwayne had the, the wisdom to be like, okay, we're going to defer to Greg's song. And then I'm going to finish the arrangement. Like whipping post was an argument that they had back in the day that became like one of our most important influences. But that song came out of an argument because the argument was Greg wrote this funk tune that was in four, four and Barry Oakley came up with this riff and Dwayne came up with this riff in these odd times. And to be honest with you, Greg was never totally sold on those things. (laughs) And I don't think those guys ever got writing credit on the song. And so you know, that's the true sense of like how these things were bands. And Greg Allman ran his band, even though it was his picture and everyone was coming to hear him, the band behind the scenes was run like a band. It was very much like an open forum of input. Um, and I think that there's, again, there's a modesty, there's a humility in that that I had reinforced, again, by the Milwaukee scene. When it, The reason I slid right into Greg's band, which was in the summer of 2008, I sat in with the Allman brothers and immediately Greg said, you're in my band. And he made a personnel change to get me in. But we just had this connection about, you know, the blues and, and also about songwriting. And we had all these things in common from Bobby Blue Band to our, our obsession with Tony Joe White and Johnny Guitar Watson and, mm-hmm. and, and all these things that may have been obscure to other people we were both obsessed with. And it just, that's what that partnership was all about was, pure music. And I, I can't tell you how much that camp is similar to when back in the day we would have hung out with, you know, the couple of times I spent with Hubert Sumlin or I spent with Mel Ryan or, you know, guys like Manti Ellis or Bob Hobbs, you know, that group they had. Like these guys are very, the Almond Brothers family is very similar to the older jazz musicians I knew growing up. And I think a lot of it has to do with JMO's involvement in the band, but their ethos is really along those lines. You know, it's almost like hanging with jazz guys. And then you have Greg who was an anomaly. He's like, here's a songwriter who's like a combination of like Tony Joe and Jackson Brown and happens to be in this band of like some right. of the greatest rock musicians in history. Right. Um, but that's all that exposition. Again, you know, you're leading me down a lot of great rabbit holes, Greg. So I appreciate your your patience. I can get long winded, but. Um, no, it's all good. It's all great. I, I have a lot of fondness uh for all these things we're talking about, like I, like a deep connection. Um, and Greg was one of those, like Greg was family, uh, to me. And, uh, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about him. Um, I really miss him a lot. And, uh, he was just, you know, he was a really special cat, man. And I, I caught him, you know, at a very vulnerable time in his life. Ultimately, you know, the first few years we were kind of running around playing casinos and festivals. And then in the last three years, it became this race to the finish, uh, with his cancer diagnosis. And of course we made two records in that period and, uh, back to making live in Southern blood. And they were, they were very, um, they were a ton of fun, but they were also like kind of on a, a mortal coil. Um, right. And, and there's, you know, it was a really special experience in that way. And I, I, the first couple of years, it was like, you know, is this going to be a job or is this going to be a band? And then all of a sudden one day he came up to me and he was like, this is a band. We're switching gears. I'm not just going to play the hits. You know, we're going in this direction. And then it became a band and we kind of got all the right guys involved. And, um, it really became 
an amazing, amazing, very formative experience for me. And I, to this day, man, I'll be honest with you, I never pick up the guitar or open, open my mouth without thinking about Greg at least once. It's, I, uh, I, I can understand. Did he ever um, talk about Eddie Butts and, and, and how they grew up together? Did you know that? that Eddie my Butts? God, he never, he never mentioned that. That is That's so insane. wild. Because Eddie grew up in Daytona. And, oh, and right, played right, in right, a, right, right, And played in a, in, a, in a band with those guys. And actually, You know who uh, talked about Eddie was Floyd Miles. Do you know Floyd uh, Miles? No, who was Floyd Miles? So Floyd was the, was the guy, you know, he was a blues and R&B singer in Daytona Beach. He used okay. to sing with Eddie, I think. And, and Floyd was in the Greg Allman band when I joined it. Okay. I, I did about three or four years on a bus with Floyd. And Floyd and I used to hang out all night and talk. And he, he used to talk about Eddie. So we, Floyd and I talked about Eddie, and that's probably the connection there to Greg. Because, you know, Floyd met Greg and Dwayne when they were teenagers, and Floyd was the guy who brought them across the tracks to the juke joints. You know, that Floyd was right. the, was the okay. guy who, Floyd's the guy who lit the fire for these guys. Got it. And, and they had this, Greg and Floyd had this friendship that went, you know, all the way to the end of Greg's life. And, uh, you know, Floyd used to sing with the Greg Allman band. He'd sing a couple songs every show and play percussion. But really, he was there because he was, you know, he was a wonderful singer, but he was really like the patriarch of the whole sound. Yeah, but he yeah. used to play with Eddie. For those of you who don't know, Eddie Butts is a, is a musician from, uh, lived in Milwaukee for years on end and always just had really good, top 40 bands, but always lean towards, you know, R&B and, but they would do the hits of the day, but man, he, I, I put a band together with him about 10 years ago and we just played a whole bunch of Johnny Guitar Watson and Donny Hathaway tunes. It was awesome. Oh my God. Where are the recordings of this, Greg? Uh, they, unfortunately we don't have any recordings, but it was a blast, but he told one awesome Dwayne Allman story. He said they were riding in a car down in, um, in Daytona. And at the time, uh, Eddie, who's an African-American, had a white girlfriend, and he was in the car with, with Dwayne, and some, somebody went by and talked smack about the fact that Eddie was with this, this white gal. And Dwayne followed the car, and when the guy got out of the car, Dwayne got some sugar and poured it in the guy's gas tank, and they drew <laughs> Nice. Shoot, you could get killed for that back then. God, Dwayne, God Dwayne, Dwayne, Dwayne apparently man, did not suffer fools, bless him. No, he he was a, he was a tough motherfucker, and uh, trust me, the Almond Brothers band needed him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll um, tell you what. You know, I, I it's it's funny because I was such a huge Almond Brothers fan, and um, and I remember when I got out of co in college. So this is you know eighty eighty eight, right? So. Um, that Almond, uh, Greg Almond record, because I love Danny Toller, you know, because of course, you know, but by, by the time I got to go see the Almond Brothers, it was, uh, I think the first time I saw him, it was in um, uh, 81, maybe. So I was, you know, 15, something like that. And I had a similar experience as you had with just going to see Stevie Ray for the first time. I saw the Almond Brothers at, um, at uh, Summerfest, and it was back in the day where it was general admission, so there were no reserved seats. You had to go and wait all day long, and you camped out, and oh, your wow. buddies would, would go get beer and stuff and come back, and you it was this real communal thing, and then finally at night, the band would come on, and and the uh, the Nighthawks opened up. <clears throat> and I remember Jimmy Thackeray played. I didn't know who he was from Adam, but I thought, this guy's freaking unbelievable. 
And then the Allman Brothers came out, and they rocked my brain. And I remember, um, you know, that was back when it was, you know, obviously Dickie and Danny Toller. And uh, and then years later, I remember I saw uh, Greg Allman was on tour, and it was to me it was always so frustrating in that era because it was, you know, the Grateful Dead were so huge, right? They would pack Alpine Valley night after night. I mean, Greg, I don't know if you realize, but the Grateful Dead are still huge. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Yes, yes. In in all their guises and forms that they in, in all to their take iterations and mutations. And over and over again. Yes. But it was so <laughs> odd to me that you know the Allman Brothers at that particular time seemed to be so overlooked. You know what I mean? It was like here was this great ultimate jam band, you know what I mean? That was beat with the arguably one of the greatest blues singers of his generation fronting the band, and they're being kind of overlooked by the younger generation in a pretty significant way. I remember I saw him in Madison, and, they, and Greg Allman was, it was this is 1984, and uh, I was a, uh, I just had graduated from high school, and I went over to um, Headliners in Madison. Remember that club? It was around for, I don't know, a while anyway. And it was a double bill with um, the Outlaws and Greg Allman. And even though the Allman Brothers got lumped into Southern, I never considered them Southern rock. You know what I mean? I never considered them like Skinner or Molly Hatchet or, well, or Greg, the Outlaws. Greg used to say, Greg used to say, there's no such thing as Southern rock. All rock is Southern. <laughs> there you go. And, and I remember they were flip-flopping who would open up that, you know, on this tour. And Greg Allman opened up. And there was like 50 people there. And I just, I just couldn't believe it. And the, and the dance floor was completely open. So at one point, I realized there was going to be no, So I just went up, and I just put my arms on the stage, and Greg Allman was right there, and Danny Toller was right there. And wow. I, the oddest thing was is that he had a full stack, um, and he just had the Les Paul plugged right into that thing, and it wasn't, like, deafening. It was the greatest guitar sound I'd ever heard to that point. I was like... Oh my God, he'd turn it down, it was clean, he'd turn it up and it was raw. It's like, this is the greatest band of all time, you know? And, and then that, th those records came out, you know, I'm No Angel came out, and then uh, I really liked that just before the bullets fly. I mean, even now, when you listen back, you know, obviously with, you know, the 80s kind of put a sheen as far as production on yeah. everything, but, it, but it's a great record. I mean, there's some great tunes oh, man. on there. Yeah, that tune, that tune, Demons, is great. Um, yeah. We used to do that, and Bullets, and, uh, you know, we... You know, Angel is a it's a great it's a great rock pop tune, but I you know, that was that was the only song in the set that we, we had to play at every show. Right. There was one I, there was towards the end, there was one show where I was like, Greg, can I because I used to make the set list, I said, Greg, can I make a show without Angel in the set list? And he goes, Yeah, man, we should have been doing that a long time ago. And I did it. We played a casino somewhere and I remember it was in Minnesota. And uh, man, we finished the show and the promoter was right there with the road manager, like this. And the road manager comes up to me and he goes, Scott, the promoter is not going to pay us if we don't play Angel. <laughs> oh, so, my God. You're kidding me. Yeah. So we I, I think I think he had a, I think he had a gun to our head or something. So we had to go back. It was something to that order. So we had to go back and play an encore. We weren't supposed to play an encore because we had it was a casino. So we had a time limit. But we went back out and played Angel so so that we could very peacefully get paid without having to make a stink. <laughs> so, oh my! So we played Angel on every Greg Allman gig for nine years. Um, oh, I can understand. So people that, love man. that song. They love that song, and that, of course, was a feature of the Greg Allman band. You're never going to hear that song with the Allman Brothers. But we did a lot of good excavation of his back catalog too. You know, there was things like uh, 
I always preferred the version of Come and Go Blues on the record playing up a storm. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, because the, the Almond Brothers version had all those sort of like Dickie Pets kind of, you know, guitar things. And I felt like I always felt like those were out of place. Right. So we would do that arrangement. You know, we had a lot of and then, of course, Whipping Post was our most famous thing, because what I was telling you earlier is, you know, this this was a song Greg wrote for four and he he reclaimed it in his own band. We used to play it in four four. But I did convince him when we did our live album back to Macon the day of the show, I convinced him to allow us to put the in the middle as a transition of solos. I convinced him to let us put it in and we put it in. So when you listen to back to making alive, we got it in there. Cause I, you know, my 14 year old brain was just like, I, I can't play whipping post without the riff. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so well, we well, got talk, it in there eventually. Talk a little bit about what it, it's like. I mean, cause that's, I mean, you brought a lot of new life and your own originality in there, but you have to obviously pay homage to what was as far as the almond thing is concerned, because that's just part of the thing. But talk a little bit about the challenges of being in that position, because, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, people who look at music, you know, in these legacy bands, they can be freaking brutal about wanting things just so. And it seems like you very successfully managed to win them over. You know what I mean? Because that's not an easy thing to do. So what was your well, experience I mean, like? I'm, I, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would disagree with you. <laughs> I, I, what I did is, what I did is, you know, like, like I said, like what I learned when I was a teenager from, from the scene that we came up on and what I learned in New York from, from guys like, you know, Bill Sims and also working with all these great musicians here, like Charlie Drayton and, um, you know, just you follow the songs and you follow the singer. And what I did with Greg Allman is I just did that. So when we played Dreams or Ain't Wasting Time No More, he would tell me, play as long as you want. And then when we would play, you know, uh, Sweet Feeling um, or Statesboro Blues, a shuffle, I'd play one or two choruses. And what it did for me is I always said it was the dream gig for a guitarist because I got to be on one song, I would go, okay, I got to think about Dwayne here. Okay, on this one, I'm going to think about Danny Toller. And I would do that. Like when we would play Angel, I would play Dan's solo, you know. It's a great middle. solo. It is. And then at the end, I would do my own thing. But I but I I used to have these markers when I would do the gig. And I I looked at the gig as this incredible privilege as a guitarist to kind of go through these guys. And I mean, look, I feel the same way you do about Dan. I discovered Dan on the Dreams box set. There was a version of Liz Reed on there right. that was one of the most important guitar solos I ever learned was that, right. you know, version of Liz Reed. Um Dan was an absolutely brilliant guitarist. Um, and he was a huge influence on how I approached the gig. Also, this is something a lot of people don't know and should know about the Greg Allman band. Um, there were a couple guys before I joined, but, but one of them was Robin Ford. And right. when I joined the band, Robin's always been a big influence of mine. Um, and getting into Robin, it's, let's, let's bring it full circle to the Tone Controls gig. I learned about Robin from, from seeing your gig for some reason. I can't remember if you played one of his arrangements or what, maybe you played talk to your daughter or something. I can't uh, remember we, what we you used did. To, we used to do revelation. You did revelation. That was it. And I learned, and Rick Holmes showed me that tune and that got me into Robin. So when I heard, I've always been a huge fan of Robin. And when I 
found out that Robin did the gig. I convinced my friend Jay Collins, who got me the gig, who'd been on the gig for a few years already, to get me the, the board tapes of, well, board discs at that time in 2008 of Robin doing the gig. And something I haven't talked about a lot is I actually took those discs and I, I copped a bunch of shit Robin was doing. So the gig was kind of like an homage to all these different people at first. And it took me a long time to find my way. But the way I found my way was, again, through the songs. I, Greg and I would go through the back catalog and there were a couple songs that I wrote that he ended up putting in every set. And then there were songs we were writing together that we started bringing in. And that started giving me my own lane to go in. But it was a really cool thing. Like people, a couple of people have asked me about the, the guitar solo that I played on My Only True Friend, which is the song Greg and I wrote on Southern Blood that was the, the, the single off that. Right. And uh, we actually got nominated for an Americana Grammy for that song. Um, and I'm very proud of the, the tune compositionally and lyrically and what we came up with. But when I was in the studio, you know, I had to, they wanted me to, it was the only solo on the record that was overdubbed. Um, from front to back. And, uh, you know, when I went to play it, I said, Greg, is there anything, you know, we hadn't really played the song live. So I said, is there anything you're, you're thinking of for this? Like, you know, I just, I want to get an idea before I go in. Cause I don't want to be too in this lane or that lane. And he goes, he goes, give me something that's like you, but David Gilmore and Kenny Burrell. <laughs> and that's, that's really how cool this job was. Like that's for, for guitar players like you and I, that's like manna from heaven. It's like, oh my God, I get to combine two of my favorite guitar players of all time and be myself. And that's a great way to sum up how the gig was on a daily basis. You know, he would always ask me to do my thing, but he would have, as the composer, as the band leader, he would always have these sort of references that he would give you to kind of point you in the right direction. And if you listen to the solo, you're here. I actually play one of Kenny Burrell's licks in the solo. The David Gilmore thing I just took as kind of a direction to kind of take my time because okay, yeah, yeah. Greg always liked it when you would milk a note. That that that's what made him happy as a clam. Is if you could play a solo or you could really milk a note, that would just that would just churn his butter, man. That was like that was the shit for him. So my <laughs> thing was to like slow down and listen. And and I had I've been a huge fan of Kenny my whole life. Obviously, another guy who was a huge influence on the Chicago blues guys we love, like Otis Rush and Magic Absolutely. Sam. And buddy Guy, but then, of course, became a huge influence on Stevie Ray Vaughan. Right. So that's kind of that kind of sums up how the gig was. It was it was it was like it was like the dream gig, you know. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I was uh, it was awesome to see you in that position, I thought. Doggone it. Milwaukee strikes again, and there he is. Yeah, we well, and and now with Little Feet, it's like, you know, um, interesting thing about that is I was in a I was in a very traditional blues band in Milwaukee when I was 16 or 15. And uh I, I got fired from the band because I wanted to play uh Almond Brothers and Little Feet songs. <laughs> <laughs> so well, you know, I, I I don't know if you knew this, but you know, Paul Barrera and I were pretty good buddies. And Paul, wow. Paul would uh, when he, whenever he would come into town, we started doing stuff together years ago. T. Lavitz, um, do you remember T. Lavitz? He was on Dixie Dregs. Of course, he's a great musician. And uh, T. was in a band years ago called the Blues Busters. So this is post Little Feet, and they put together this cool 
kind of amalgam super-ish group with, uh, it was Catfish Hodge fronting the band. It was in Paul Barrere, T. Lavitz, Freebo on bass, and um, Zach on drums. Uh, what the hell was Zach? Anyway, Zach had played with um, Jackson Brown. I can't remember his last name. I'm spacing. Anyway, so we did a tour with these guys in uh, in Colorado. It was a Tone Controls. That was a whole other story. <laughs> I, the book will come at some point. But I was going to say, we, I can, <laughs> I can, in Colorado, I can smell that tour from here. <laughs> and uh, after the first night, well, the, after the first night, you know, we went up and played, and the Paul's like, you're playing with us afterwards. So I would go up and I would play, you know, That's Dixie great. Chicken with them and stuff. And then when Little Feet would come to town, well, Paul used to, I used to do this thing called Guitar Nuts at, at Summerfest. And um, Paul and Fred would play it with me if they were in town. And then they would have me sit in with the Feet and I, and I would always do Texas Twister with, uh, with, with Fred, because we used to do that in the tone control. Oh, man, that's so, right up your alley, bro. So Fred and I would do it in stereo. And, uh, and I was so bummed, because at one point, we did it, and they recorded it, and they're like, you know, it's made the shortlist for this live record we're coming out with. I'm like, boy, wouldn't that be awesome to be on a Little Feet record? And then at the end, they're like, yeah, we didn't choose it. And I'm like, you fuckers! <laughs> so, but they would, they would come to town, and... Um, and Paul would call and, say, and he's like, yeah, we're playing at Summerfest. You want to sit? I'm like, absolutely. And he would say, well, what songs do you want to do? And I was like, you're kidding. I said, well, I want to do All That You Dream. And I want to do Texas Twister. And I want to do Skin It Back. I mean, I love Lowell big time. But Paul was my favorite songwriter, I think, in terms of the funky. I mean, I'm, I'm not that they're one better than the other. But a lot of the songs that I really loved were Paul's songs. You know, yeah. Old Folks Boogie, All That You Dream. Um, um, skin it back, you know, yeah. all those tunes. So, uh, it was, and then he came in and he played on a record we did. Um, um, I wrote up, you remember, remember Semi Twang, right? From town here, yeah, of course. And, um, and, and John Seeger and I wrote a shit ton of songs at one point. We just, I would send him little demos and he would write. Lyrics to us. We came up with these tunes. So I did a record with John and I. And we we got a bunch of different people to play on it. And Paul was one, and John Cleary, and Robin Ford, and whoa, and all this kind of stuff. So Paul came in town and played on that. It was a lot of fun, and he ended up singing one of the tunes. And so I, I was I was really tight with Paul. So it was it was really really sad, obviously, when because you know we we were all under the assumption that. You know, we knew he was battling what he was battling, uh, but it seemed that you know whatever treatment he was taking seemed to be you know working. You know, and so it was. It was sad, but obviously, you know, I'm I'm pleased as punch that you know if someone's got to come in and do the thing, that you're the guy. I mean, not that you're replacing Paul, but you're in the band. And well, the, and, the crazy uh, thing was, I you know, Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams were opening for them, so they they picked up. You know, they kind of picked up where Paul couldn't join them on that tour in November of 2019, and uh, you know, Bill Payne was out with the Doobie Brothers, and as it turns out. Um, a bunch of guys from the Greg Allman band worked for the Doobie Brothers because the Doobies met our people when we were on the road with the Greg Allman band together. And Got it. I, I have, you know, Tom and Pat are friends of mine too from the Doobies, luckily. And Bill was like, I have two shows and I need a guitar player singer. Like, I can't get Larry for these last two shows. They had to go do like the Americana uh, cruise or something. So... You know, Bill was asking around. He's on tour with the Dewey Brothers, and he's like, I need a guitar player singer. I can't find one. Everyone he was calling wasn't available. And everyone kept saying Scott Sherrard. And he's like, yeah, I remember him. He sat in with the Dewey Brothers, but he just played guitar. And, you know, I need somebody who can sing this shit. And everybody's like, look, trust me, this guy can sing all the Will George shit. You should get him. 
So finally he just gave up and called me. He was like, you know, look, man, I'm out here, I'm out here with the doobies. They're all telling me you're the perfect guy for the job. Do you really know Little Feet music? And I said, trust me. I said, well, George is my spiritual leader. I was, you know, a overweight, white, middle-class kid. And I was reading Mad Magazine, listening to Chuck Berry. And then I discovered Waiting for Columbus and Lil George. And it was like, this is what I can do. Because like I said, right. Hendrix was unattainable. You know, Stevie Ray was unattainable. But there was something about Little Feet and Lil George. They were this salon of music. And I saw so much of who I was in him. And I, I, had, a, I had a Strat tune to open A when I was 12. I was playing right. with a socket piece. I said, don't worry, I've got this. And Bill was like, okay, I trust you. Here's the tunes, blah, blah. Show up for the first gig. It happened to be in Long Island, which was, you know, sort of local for me. And I go to soundcheck and set up. And then my buddy, Jay Collins, from the Craig Allman Band, also plays horns in Little Feet. If you can believe this, there's all these, like, tied up. I used to play with awesome. Levon Helm sometimes, and he has those horn guys. So it's like all these people I already knew who were in the camp. And Jay calls me from the Little Feet tour bus, and he says, we just found out Paul Barrere died. Oh. So my first sound check and my first gig was the day Paul passed away. It was the first time I met oh. Fred and Kenny and Sam. So it was like this unbelievable. And then, you know, we went on stage. And I mean, in some ways, luckily it was in the New York area because this is a place where my band actually can sell a few tickets. So I felt like I had some allies in the crowd. But, you know, we're in this sold out place and Bill Payne goes on the mic and says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, Paul Barrera has passed away. Oh, my God. And then I had to play this show and stand in his spot. And that was a moment where everything I had done in my life up to that point, especially with Greg, like literally carrying Greg on stage at Red Rocks, you know, like all of it kind of came together in that moment. And I just went, man, I'm going to do a good fucking job for these guys. And I'm going to have fun. And I swear to God, it was like tears on stage And then it was like just wide smiles the whole time. And we got to the end of the gig and that one of the, one of the best moments of my life. And I've been lucky to work with a lot of my heroes, you know, way, way too many for us to get into the conversation today. But we went to do the bow at the end of the gig and Bill Payne came right up to me and he goes, motherfucker, you do know our music. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And that, for me, that's, you know, and I went down, you know, I went backstage afterwards and the guys just came up to me and they were like, you're in the band. That's it. Awesome. And it was just one of those things where it was just like, that's it. You're in the band. This is the well, day. Well, I'll Paul tell you what, you know, you know, what's interesting is, is that I was listening to some of your solo stuff and it, of course the guitar playing is always awesome, but you are a singing motherfucker. I'm going to tell Well, thanks, man. You I, sound great. I've worked. Thank you. And I've worked really hard on it. Um, you know, there was, you know, Stokes was my first big influence as a singer. Um, you know, our our mutual buddy from from Milwaukee who passed away recently, and he just had the most amazing voice. And I think it was so amazing that I spent, you know, when I was in Milwaukee, I wasn't really serious about singing enough. And when I got to New York, I really decided to get it together. And I've spent, you know, I, I studied with a vocal coach at one time. And then with Greg, it was like this whole other thing of just literally, you know, sitting with him on couches backstage, on stage, right next to him. I was always set up right next to him. And I learned so much from him about delivery, control, phrasing. So what I'm doing now at 44 is I'm really trying to um, 
really just get my phrasing together on the guitar and with the voice where I can edit as much as I possibly can down to the, to the maximum, you know, uh, uh, just infinitesimal delivery so that it just gets right into somebody's heart. It's like, that's what I've learned by being around these people is just trying to edit. And I, every year I've added, I always say, I try to subtract like a thousand notes, you know, <laughs> I, I get it. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day as someone said, you know, it's like, well, you're always learning something new. I'm like, yeah, but I'm also trying to get rid of a lot of shit. <laughs> it's like you, you you reach a certain point where you're like, okay, this needs to go away. And the, you know what I mean? Not that, you know, and again, that's not being curmudgeonly. It's just reality. I guess, you know, someone said the other day something that just seems so poignant and, and it seems to make so much sense. I think you were talking about they were hanging out with Billy Gibbons years ago. They were opening up for ZZ Top or something. And Billy Gibbons just said, um... You know, when you're playing music or when you're writing music, create music you want to listen to. And when I listen, when I listen to music, I don't want to hear a bunch of shit. I listen to really simple shit. You know what I mean? For the most part, groovy stuff. I, you know, I was on my walk today. I'm listening to Albert King. You know, you know, I'm going to sleep last night. I'm listening to Hendrix. You know, I might. It, you know, it, for the most part, you know, if you create music that you listen to or that you want to listen to. You find that's entirely different from music that you think you're expected to play. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I mean, you know, that you kind of speak for yourself in that in that sense, Greg, because it's like I don't watch a lot of guitar demos, but when I when I do and I see yours, they're they're like musical. I think, you know, that's just because you're a musician before you're a guitarist. And that's that's really the most important. And that goes back to like that humility thread with all these influences we have is like just make sure you're making music. You know, and right. <laughs> that's that's the main thing, no matter what you're doing, even if you are like trying to sell a guitar for somebody, it's like if you're always making music, you're 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 doing the job because it it, it kind of it just it, it elevates the whole thing. And that's that's, you know, and again, that's, you know, coming full circle in our conversation. That's it's something it's it's a path that, uh, you know, it's once you're on it, it's kind of impossible to stray from because it's very easy to tell if you are. But right. I think we were very, some of it's luck and some of it is our, you know, our own uh, viewpoints and personalities and hopefully as much humility as we can bring to the table. And then the other part of it, of course, is just fucking hard work. Um, but I think we were lucky to be raised in that environment. And it's, you know, also, you know, let's be frank. I mean, before the Internet, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot more discourse in life. Um, you know, I, I, I was schooled by a lot of tough band leaders, you know, people who yeah. weren't afraid to be fucking tough with me or fire me or curse me out on stage, kick me off the stage. I mean, it's that Charlie Parker getting the ride symbol thrown at him. I had a few right. of those things happen to me and I'm sure you did too. And, you know, you, you were mentioning like how, like some of these cats, the blues cats would be a little bit tough on you. It's like some of these guys I wanted to curse out for being, you know, but we all used to say blues Nazis, you know, and I, right, I right. know where you stood on that because when I saw your show, it was it was inspiring to me because I was like, okay, here's a guy who's not afraid to go wherever the muse is going to take him. That's that's kind of who I am. I'm like a rock and roll guy, really. That's kind of how I look at that. But then you you know a lot of these the the blues purists they did so much for me because you know I'd curse them out, but then I'd like cop their licks, you know. Right. And it's like as I got older, I'm like, ah, that motherfucker was great. 
You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, and it's just like, I love that, man. I don't see enough of that these days. Like, it's just like, especially with young people, it's like, everybody's fucking high-fiving all the time. It's like, all right, you know, it's like, you know, we can all be friends, but it's like, you know, there's gotta be a little shit talking and shit kicking. And like, there's, <laughs> if you want to play American music, it's messy. I mean, America is messy. This is why I say it's like, if you go anywhere else in the first world, people have free healthcare and free education. It's amazing, but we don't have any of that here. And it's kind of what makes the music what it is, is the fact that it's just a fucking crazy place. Um, it is a crazy Not place. that I think it should continue to be that way, but I would rather we were like France. Trust me, I have two little kids, right. you know, that I'm trying to raise in this place. And I would much rather be like the EU culturally. It's just who I am. But um, but I also, you know, I think that informs our our, our vibe and our energy and our music. And, and I feel really, I personally playing this music feel like my my skeleton key in every situation I've gotten into was that Milwaukee scene. It's just because I every musician, whether it's Little Feet or Greg Allman or Levon Helm, um, anyone, any of these legends who I've encountered and worked with post my time in Milwaukee, that's always been the trick with me. It's like I can sit down with them and have a conversation. It's just like, oh, you know. Right, right, right. And then it's over. You know, then it's like that's why to this day, like I remember the last time. I walked, you know, Donald Fagan lives up here in Woodstock. And the last time I walked into a dressing room to see him, you know, there were a lot of people there to see him and stuff. And he was being really nice. He's a great guy. And he just walks right across the room. He walks up to me and he goes, man, you got to hear this Lightning Hopkins record. And he runs and grabs it, puts it on. He's like, come here, come here. Let's sit down and talk about it and shit. You know, that's the skeleton key, man. It's that, it's that right. we're all chasing that. Yeah. Whether you're Donald Fagan or Levon or anybody else, we're all chasing Muddy, Lightning Hopkins, Miles Davis, Jimi Hendrix, Tony Joe White. You know, we're all chasing that. Johnny Guitar Watson. That's those are the skeleton key people. Donnie Hathaway. You know, you bring up those people and those those guys from that generation, they're gonna go, oh, come over here. You come over here. We're we're gonna talk about that. You know? Right, right. And next thing you know, you're talking about some fucking diner, both of you like in Atlanta. And then the next thing you know, you got a job. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah, and then you just you know you know you continue to know when to shut up and when to talk, and you can you can have a seat on the bus and just you know keep your eyes and your ears wide open, and and you'll learn a lot from these people. And that's really I look at myself as like when I work with students, which I've done a lot in the last year because of the lockdown on Zoom. Is I work with people and I look at myself, especially with young people, as the bridge generation. That's what I call my age in, in my mid forties. Is and I think you're you're very solidly in this category as well, where we're the bridge from the those old timers who are now in their seventies, eighties, who have passed along to the young people. Like we've got to bring that vibe that we got, and we've got to we've got to reinforce that as best we can with these young people, so that they understand because they can't go to the up and under anymore and that's run right. into these people. That's I mean, a, you know, it, it kind of, in whatever guise we can manifest it, that's kind of where we're at, you know, but I got to run. Man, well, listen, this we, we, we could chat. probably talk for eight hours, but we should probably, I mean, there's so, <laughs> we should probably cut you it. Know, Greg, I just want to congratulate you because you know, you're one of my favorite guitar players and this is a great show. And I'm such a oh, fan of so I'm much. such a fan of everything you do since I literally since I was a child. But I got to tell you, congratulations on not talking about guitar gear. 
Because <laughs> you're one of the best guitar gear salesmen. I see you play a Les Paul with P90s. I'm like, I have to buy that. Like, listen to that. And like, you know, I, I, I know you're known for that. To me, you're, no, you're known to me as a great musician. But it's like, we did a whole uh, Greg Cock podcast and we didn't talk about guitar. So either everyone is going to hate this or they're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but this, we, we go whatever direction happens on this podcast. That's what's great about it. It's like anything can happen. We could talk gear. We could not talk gear, but for the most, it's always about, you know, obviously the jams. Yeah. As I like well, to say. Well, I, I tell you, man, that's, that it's again, you know, it says, you know, for your fans who are watching this, it, it says a lot about, um, your scope as a muse, as a musician and your, your, um, your, your openness. And I, I hope that, I hope we can all continue to learn from that and grow together in that in that sense, um, you know, embracing the moment, you know, putting the song first, putting the music first. And, and, and this conversation just has just been great, man. It's brought back so many memories for me. And I, you know, likewise, and I, and I know a lot that of fun. you are an elder of mine, but I've also been proud of your growth and development, you know, both both in your professional career, but also in your musicianship and it's been inspiring to watch you play with your son. And, you know, it's, it's just great, man. So just keep it up and thank you for having me more than anything. Oh, like you know? my pleasure. Absolutely. And hopefully one of these days we'll get to do some playing. That'd be, that'd be a lot of it's, fun. It's coming. We just got to get through the rest of, uh, you know, the plague, you know, we're still, <laughs> exactly. we're still rolling out it's, of the plague. Yeah. And there's always speed bumps to be overcome in that regard. So once the pestilence is passed, as I like to say, <laughs> hopefully we can cross paths and play some some jamage. Well, for, for all the cats who are left out there, give them hugs for me when you see them. You know, it shall be done. We've got so many in common. It would I, it would be another hour if I talked about all the musicians who we have shared the stage with in that scene who, who are just so great. So keep keep the flame lit out there for us, buddy. I will indeed, my friend. You take care right, of yourself. Greg. Thanks again. I appreciate Thanks, it. Brother. Have a good one. You too, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.